0: congratulations on the new ep
3: yes wendy good job good job playing we had a lot of fun at the frequency in madison and everybody that showed up you are the greatest people in the universe and thank you for being the greatest people in the universe it was a party all right yes it's a uh new ep that we released and it's called the wilderness of almost was and never were and you guys can check that out as part of the mailing list And you can find that at OthersidePodcast.com or SunspotUniverse.com is how that you guys can uh, get involved and be part of that.
0: That's right. And we have the cover of it is a special coloring book page that we're kind of having a little coloring contest. So you can download that and send us your submission if you are interested? Oh,
1: yeah.
3: Yeah, please do that. So check that out. And you guys can get on the mailing list. A lot of you are already on the mailing list, so you already know about it. Um, <laughs> but just letting you know. So please do check that out. These are all songs that we wrote for the podcast. And then we take our favorite demos and tracks that we write for the podcast. And then we put them into a studio and we give them the full Hollywood glamour rock and roll treatment in the recording studio.
0: Uh-huh.
3: So that was fun. And there's another place that people can find uh, more music and things like that. And that place is, is a little store known as iTunes. Isn't that right? Oh, Wendy? yeah.
0: That's right. And guess what else is in iTunes? What? There's reviews of our podcast. And we have a new one this week. Holy crap. What is it? I know. It's, it's amazing. Okay. You ready for this? And it's five stars. So obviously the person has excellent taste. Funny and informative, great dialogue, and awesome stories by Comical Podcasts. This podcast is outstanding. Mm. Mike and Wendy are fantastic together. They are. Very funny people with an awesome take on the paranormal. Love Herm of the Herm's House Radio podcast. And funny enough, we were on the Herm's House Radio podcast. Oh, just, really? Uh, last week. Oh, that's right. We were. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so he contacted us to see if we'd join his show, and we had a really fun time talking with him. That's true. And you can hear that episode if you look up the Herm's House Radio podcast. And that's Herm, H-U-R-R-R-M, three R's. If you There's three R's, yes. like like how you'd think you'd spell Herm. Triple R. Triple R. R. It's like a pirate station. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we are on the January 8th episode of that. So if you want to hear Mike and I talking to a comedian on a, a night that we're not recording our own podcast, check that out, the January 8th episode. And thank you, Herm, for your five-star review. We really appreciate that. Well, today we have a special treat here with us. A special treat? Is it like Rice Krispie Treats? Ooh, even better. Okay, even better. (laughs) (gasps) Even better? It's my sister. It's our (laughs) favorite weirdo. That's right. She brings treats in the form of knowledge about things like ghosts and hauntings and exorcisms. Allison Jornlin of Milwaukee Ghosts. (laughs) That's me. Welcome. Yes.
1: Thank you. And Allison, uh...
0: you actually inspired this week's
3: topic.
1: Yeah, well, um, we were at the Haunted America conference and, you know, coming back from it and talking shop. And I was like, we have got to get Robert Damon Schneck on the podcast, because he's a Floridian after my own heart. Um, he is somebody who who likes to do what I do, which is sit around <laughs> and read old newspapers and find yep. the weirdest, sickest stories you can, and then uh, blog about them and tell other people about them. Uh, he he does that as well. So um, I'm sorry I couldn't be actually on the interview this time, but but hopefully we'll we'll get him back in the future
0: because I'm like his biggest fan. Yeah, and thanks for inspiring that.
3: <laughs> yes, that really was a great idea because. I was all excited to do it because, number one, the story that Robert Damon Schneck tells in this particular podcast and that inspired the film, The Bye-Bye Man, that came out this weekend on Friday the 13th, the story that inspired it took place right in Madison, Wisconsin. And he's like, well, actually, Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. Sun Prairie is close enough. It's like saying Verona, Wisconsin, you know, anything like that. You know, it's like might as well be in Madison. Everybody works in Madison who lives in Sun Prairie anyway. (laughs) but uh, that's so great that the, from this area and also i hear that in the movie they say it takes place in sun prairie and madison too oh, so they don't cool. they don't change the location for the movie wow right even though they filmed it in cleveland and I tried to make the connection, and uh, we talk about it in the interview a little bit, but just the fact that uh, this, all this kind of strangeness happened in the early 90s with a Ouija board in Wisconsin. I just love that Wisconsin is the home of strange things in the United States. <laughs>
1: you better believe it.
3: Uh, you don't really get stranger. And speaking of strange, Robert Damon Schneck is the historian of the strange, and let's go to him. All right, we are here. With Robert Damon Schneck, the historian of the strange, and author, and the guy that originally wrote the story that inspired the movie that just came out, The Bye-Bye Man. All right, how are you doing today, Robert? Good, Mike. How are you? Well, it's, it's a little warmer here in Wisconsin, so um, the, the, over the weekend it was negative 10. Today it's uh, about 22 degrees, so it's It's great. It's tropical. <laughs> right. I was going to say, I'm not, I'm not even wearing <laughs> not even wearing full pants today. And, well, anyway. So, Robert, just wanted to talk a little bit about your books and what got you into this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, f- I find that when people are into paranormal stuff or even into just weird history and things like that. It's a certain kind of commitment that doesn't come with other type of topics and stuff like because, you know, you could you can write great literature or you can write about sports or something. But when you write about the paranormal and, and weird stories and history and things, you have to have a certain commitment. When did you know that that was going to be the, the type of thing that you were going to write about?
2: Well, I wasn't I actually did not start out as a writer. I started out as an illustrator. But this was always my fascination. Uh Ever since I lost, started losing interest in dinosaurs, uh, I switched over to Bigfoot. That's what really got me started. Mm. Um, two books in particular, On the Track of Unknown Animals by Bernard Heuvelman and um, uh, the, the big Ivan Sanderson book about Bigfoot and Yeti, uh, bom- Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life. Uh, my library had both of them. And. I read them and reread them and re re-reread them, and that more or less uh, that more or less determined where I was going to go. Although the very my very first exposure to it, now that I think on it, is uh, was the book Stranger Than Science by Frank Edwards. Okay, my mother my mother left a dog eared copy of it on her night table when I was very young, and I, I somehow got got a hold of it, and I devoured that book. And uh, that actually comes closer to what I, I ended up, what I've ended up doing, because it's really a collection of kind of open-ended weirdness. It's not as defined as something like cryptozoology or um, parapsychology. It's uh, that's why I really call what I do writing about the strange but true. That way, I can write about any odd thing that really interests me.
3: Sure. So you're more of the, you're you're that Charles Fort brand of writer
2: i i suppose although um yeah i i uh, charles fort was really into big theories though uh, even though i don't think he took them all that seriously like, right. but he but he loved big theories even if he even if he concocted them just to annoy people <laughs> uh I, I i seldom have big theories probably the most the most uh elevated thing I do with what I with my writing is I use it to try to find um, things about America's past and American culture that have either been forgotten or really were not appreciated I'll, I'll give you an example mm-hmm. in in my second book mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist I have a chapter on a cult of blood drinkers that supposedly existed in kansas city now uh there were a couple of newspaper articles about it and i was never able to it was supposedly led by a uh a man named silas wilcox and members would drink each other's blood to improve each other's health now i thought that was interesting so i began looking into it i was never able to Dis- determine whether or not the group ever existed. I was right. never able to document anything. But what I did learn was that for a good part of the 19th century, a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world would, when they got sick or suffered from certain illnesses, go to the local slaughterhouse and drink the blood of freshly slaughtered animals.
3: Oh my God. I've never heard that before. So the, so so you're sick and that's not even in a vampiric kind of way. That's just like a regular kind of person is like, you know what? I I came down with a cold, you know, I I really could use some hogs blood today.
2: Well, what it was, this, this is, uh, this really surprised me because, you know, it's funny. I mentioned to somebody that you could read, you could be an expert on the civil war. You can be an expert on the, uh, on anything, but you still might not know that Americans during that period were drinking cow blood at the, at the slaughterhouse. It was uh, the idea was that, um, and it's a very primitive idea that blood is actually liquid life. It is the essence of life. And when a, a healthy, big, strong animal is slaughtered, its blood escapes, the strength and the uh, the power of the animal is escaping into the blood, and it's transferable to people who who drink it. That was the idea. It's a primitive idea. Uh, the the ancient Romans did it. People that suffered from um, epilepsy would okay. w- people who suffered from epilepsy would run down into the arena where gladiators. Were wounded and dying, and they would apply their mouths to the gladiator's wounds and drink the blood as the gladiator died as a cure for epilepsy. And that was still being done, well, not without the gladiators, of course, but human blood was still being given as a cure for epilepsy in the 19th century. Uh, When Hans Christian Andersen was a boy, there, he witnessed an execution. Uh, I think he was in Denmark when he was a, ch- a boy, uh, where the man's head was lopped off, and a, a a glass of blood was collected, and it was given to a child with epilepsy to drink as a cure. Oh, now, of course, great.
3: Now, where do you find a story like that? Is that like in Hans Christian Andersen's biography or something? Or
2: no, 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 no. It was a strange. I there are. Um, Every couple of years, somebody's going to will come out and say, "Oh, there are medicinal properties to blood It, it, it happens every few years. Someone will say that if you give uh, transfusions of young mice you know the blood of young mice to old mice, it rejuvenates them This, this always happens so But when I began looking into this story about the uh, the slaughterhouse the people drinking blood in the slaughterhouse. First of all, I was shocked. I didn't even know I I didn't know that a person could drink blood and keep it down. I had always heard that if you drink blood you'll throw it back up because it's high in iron and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it turns out you can actually drink quite a bit of fresh blood. In fact, in the Now you didn't
3: try any of this when you were doing the your research. You're not like you didn't stop by the slaughterhouse and you're like load me up.
2: No, no. (laughs) It's I, I, they they won't let me in the slaughterhouse anymore. Anyway, in one in one case, a reporter was doing a story on these slaughterhouse vampires. So he went down to the the slaughterhouse, and there were the people taking their 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 glasses of blood. And he decided, well, they can do it. I have to try it. And he said that first of all, it was surprisingly good. And he said it tasted like hot milk. Milk right out of the cow. Hmm. So, uh, so one person claimed that he that he found it uh, not bad. So I guess these other people were able to do it too. But this really was—I uh, won't say a lot of people did it, but it was widespread there. In fact, one of the things that got me started on it was I found a painting by a nineteenth-century French artist that shows a bull. A, a young bull on the floor of a slaughterhouse, and a bunch of nice middle class people standing around being handed glasses of warm blood to drink and that was one of, that was one of the things that got me started on it because I said this was common enough to be a painting, and that's when I found out, well, again, not common but widespread. and uh, one of the things that came of this that really surprised me was,. L- Two years ago, I was on a book panel, and I told the story about this uh, about the, this habit that mm-hmm. was that was done in the nineteenth century. Americans' blood drinking habit. Yeah, well, it wasn't just America; it was done all, especially in uh, Europe. But uh, a lady on the panel told me after we sat down, she said that uh, her father had worked in a slaughterhouse in the sixties and seventies, and he said that people used to come in as late as then to drink fresh blood so the the uh the habit has not disappeared at least as late as the 60s or 70s when he was working in a slaughterhouse which uh which shocked me i i couldn't i couldn't believe that
3: well they still i mean they still make it in milwaukee sometimes uh, the polish delicacy of chenina
2: Oh, yeah. Well, well, the German cooking, Eastern European cooking has a lot of blood, but that's at least cooked, right? That's not right from the source. That's not straight from the cow's jugular. <laughs> uh, but but again, like I said, that really surprised me when the lady told me this. When uh, we were talking about launching the book, there's a woman in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, who is a living vampire. She makes no bones about being a vampire. And she has several friends who are donors for her vampirism. And she says more or less what these people said. She says that when she's drinking blood, she feels prettier. She feels more excited. She feels more, more lively. She's got the
3: Elizabeth Bathory thing going on. Uh,
2: apparently, but she drinks, she doesn't bathe. And I, I was, uh, there was a talk of a, of a book launch. So I was wondering if we could bring her in and she could do a demonstration, but apparently the board of health won't let you do that in New York. And the whole thing fell through, but it would have made for quite a book launch. <laughs> I would
3: say. No, no. Where yeah. did you grow up, Robert? Like, where, where did you when you when you were first reading these books?
2: Uh, in Paramus, New Jersey. Okay, it's it's a suburb of uh, New York City. Um, mainly, were four or five big shopping malls with with little de- developments between them.
3: Sure. No, I understand that.
2: Yeah, I grew up between two gigantic malls. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, that's that's the burbs,
2: yeah, it is so you
3: you find out these interesting things and, and you started to get involved. I mean, were you originally thinking about journalism or um I mean, how did you get to be just like like writing articles? Like how do you get to be the historian of the strange? How does that career develop?
2: well, i always was I was always reading books about it, and uh, it's wonderful. One of the great things about writing about the strange but true is, As I got old, as I began doing it more seriously, I realized I was becoming friends with all the writers I used to read, which was just, that was so exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, people like uh, getting emails from Lauren Coleman and Joe Citro and all these people who I've read for years, and suddenly they're my friends, which was terrific. But um, for me, it, it actually began when I was reading a book on, it was a book called... I think Letters from Serial Killers. I think that's what it was, or written by serial killers. I don't remember. I just remember it was by the Bloat Press. You don't forget the Bloat Press. (laughs) Uh, And uh, what this book contained was, among other things, was it contained the notebooks that Charles Starkweather kept Mm -hmm. when he was in prison before his execution. Now, one of the things he wrote about was... He said that when he was a young man, a giant figure of death used to appear outside of his window growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska. And the description sounded like a Bigfoot. It sounded so much like a Bigfoot that I I couldn't believe it wasn't a Bigfoot. He even included a, a vague drawing of just this great big kind of pointy-headed figure
3: if you guys out there don't know who charles starkweather is now he was a he was in the 50s and he took a girl with him and they like did like a joyride through the midwest right and ended up killing
2: that's exactly what it was yeah it was his it was his girlfriend uh she was i think 14 he was just barely 18 they were kids really
3: martin sheen plays him in the movie badlands so if that that's inc- right if that intrigues that's right. you check out the movie from like 1973
2: yeah, it, it's it really it's a fascinating story. I, he re, Charlie Starkweather was a garbage man, and he he thought the world. He was short. He had bow legs. He he was redheaded, and he said people used to make fun of him for that. He thought the whole world was against him, and he decided to take revenge. And what he did was he drove around with his girlfriend and just shot people dead. It was a, a pretty awful. It was, yeah. and, and it was it was also one of those things. It was the classic 1950s J.D. Uh, He, he uh, modeled himself on James Dean and he, he was a classic juvenile delinquent, but uh, to return to this, this, this notebook he kept. So I, uh, I never forgot reading that story. And. I began writing when I was talking to a friend of mine who was an editor of a magazine and I just happened to mention to him that I just finished reading a really interesting book on something else and he said, "Well, why don't you write a review for it? I could I'll print it. I'll give you some money." I said, "Well, I like the sound of that." And <laughs> that, that great. was, yeah, and that was um that was the first thing I ever got paid for. And then I decided. Well, I've had this story about this sort of Bigfoot sighting that Charles Starkweather reported. I, I'm going to write to. Uh, I'm going to see maybe if Fate will print it.
3: And that's Fate. Fate magazine.
2: Fate magazine, right? And I was very cautious. I, I had no idea what I was doing. So I wrote. I wrote it up. They printed it. It was uh, you know first time out of the box. I submitted something. It was printed, which was which is very rare. Uh, but fate led to the Forty Fortean Times. I was also working for other magazines at the time, including some adult magazines, sure. and uh, at Boys Life and a few other places.
3: I remember getting a subscription to Boys Life when I was a Cub Scout in the eighties, and it just—it makes me laugh to think about. It. It's like the same person who was writing that particular article about camping or something like that also has to then go write, you know, something for Playboy or
2: Penthouse and the next. But that's a writer's life. I wish it was Playboy or Pentos. <laughs> sure. It was it was it was less glamorous magazines but um they paid the bills. Hey. And uh, actually you know, you you're, you're young enough you might even have even seen the story I wrote. It was uh, it was called The Hermit of Wolf Rocks. It was about a hermit in Pennsylvania who he uh, he had a, an unhappy love affair so he left his home and he went to go live on this mountain under this pile of rocks. Uh, in, and he spent several years under there. He, uh, there, was, there were local legends about a wild man in the woods, and it was him. Right, And he eventually was found because somebody was passing by these rocks, and there was smoke coming out of the ground. That was his cook stove and oh. that's when he was sort of that's when he was flushed out and for a while there he seemed to really enjoy the company he got a lot of a lot of people came to visit him and he became a little bit of a celebrity and he then he got tired of the attention and he disappeared again and was and was never seen but that was the uh that was i think the only thing I, that uh, i wrote for boy's life that they printed oh,
3: uh, i wrote great. a
2: few other things yeah i wrote a few other things that i don't know if they printed them or not and that was when i really had just started so uh, and the idea of being in Boy's Life was very exciting for me because it was mainstream. It meant I could do mainstream work if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I am not a mainstream sort of person. Uh, writing about a crazy hermit was as close to mainstream as I could get. I mean, then I, I, I wrote for New York Magazine a little bit, okay. New York Mag. And what? But but the only thing I was able to write for them. Was about something called the Thanatology Foundation in in Brooklyn, and the Thanatology Foundation was a foundation, is a foundation dedicated to the study of death. Oh right,
3: Thanatos, right, the god of death.
2: Right, Thanatos. I spent a fascinating afternoon with the woman who ran the place. Lovely woman and she was an expert in thanatology she had every book on the subject you could imagine she had uh, several coffins that had been made into bookcases which was neat of, of she, course, she, of course. She, she, uh, there were headstone rubbings all over the place beautiful headstone rubbings she had uh, edgar allan poe's headstone she had a bunch of them but it was it was just a terrific place but like i said that was about as mainstream as i could ever get for those magazines and The fact of the matter is, magazines were already starting to dry up, Sure, and so finally for me, the big breakthrough was getting into the Fortean Times, which was my favorite magazine in the world. I never thought I would get in there. For me, that was the equivalent of getting into Times, Smithsonian, American history. I mean, you name it, that was my goal. For a weird
3: writer, the Fortean Times really is the gold standard.
2: There are two there are two things. Appearing in the Fortian Times and being a guest on Coast to Coast. Right. If you can do those two things, you've you've made it to a certain extent. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I began to get things I began to sell things to the Fortian Times and I knew I wanted to write a book. And I, I decided that for this was I haven't made many successful plans in my life. This was one of the few. And I said to myself, well, there are two things that I'm really interested in: the bizarre and history. Now, I could do history around the world, but writing history around the world is very difficult because I want to do good research. Mm -hmm. I don't want I don't want to write junk. I want this work to be as seriously researched as anything that appears in any scientific journal i want a footnote for every assertion i want this to be properly written so and the only way to really do that kind of thorough research is in your own country otherwise you're constantly you, you've got to deal with well, and
3: you got to deal with translations and things like that and, and you're always getting secondhand from somebody who's kind of
2: yeah it's just it's just a real problem uh a lot of it has to do with just the amount of like Declare, I, I wrote a story about Canada, and even that was difficult because you know, you had to fill in your envelope and explain everything that was in it for the customs officials and all that. It was a pain. So, right. I decided I'm going to concentrate on the United States and I'm going to concentrate on anything bizarre that I find interesting that I think the 40 and Times will print. And when I get enough of these, I'm going to write a book. I'll put them together and I'll make it a book. So, that was what I started out doing. And I, I wrote to, I actually, I used to go to a place called the uh, parapsychology foundation in New York city. Oh, and sure. I got to, yeah, I got to meet people like Hans Holzer and, uh, other uh, Martin Ebon. These were people that were really big in the ghosts and right. Parapsychology. Ha-
3: I mean, everybody, Hans Holzer, I think his daughter still does it. Like it's a, it's yeah, a family she business. Still does,
2: yeah. Family business. I used to sit next to Hans Holzer and I was just, I would just, I was in awe of the man's nose. It was gigantic. Big <laughs> nice. Oh, my gosh. And it had all of these little nooks and crannies in it. It was just astonishing. Uh, he was a character. Uh, that, that's, he was a lot of fun, but he was a character.
3: Well, no you know, ever- we're we're talking real quick. I'm mean, gonna interrupt you here, Robert, but um, we have to get to the the story of the hour here. And I I could listen to you tell stories about Hans Holzer all day. Or just to me going to the Parapsychology Foundation is a dream.
2: Oh, oh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was.
3: How did you get the story of the Bye Bye Man? Like, like
2: all right, yes. how did how did
3: it show up, and how did you get it? And um,
2: all right. Oh, uh, so I I became friends with a guy named Eli at the Parapsychology Foundation.
3: Oh, perfect. Okay.
2: I I was there at the time. I was looking for stories about uh, 20th century werewolf reports. So I was there. uh, The lady who was the librarian introduced us. She thought we would make friends. We did. And he invited me to one of his Halloween parties. No, I take that back. Not a Halloween party, a Devil's Night party.
3: Okay, so October thirtieth, the day before, and we've I think exactly we've done, a, we've done a special on that. We, you know, we had somebody who used to work in the Detroit paramedics and stuff like that go over the Devil's Night yes. stuff. Yes, like
2: yes. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of the highlights of Eli's Devil's Night party was that there was a drawing for whoever guessed the right number of fires in Detroit that night would win a prize. <laughs> I, I want to go to that party. That's, that yeah. sounds like a great party. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, So anyway, I attended the party. And as it turned out, Eli always ends these parties the same way. He invites guests to tell any real ghost stories, any real scary stories they've had with monsters, demons, ghosts, um, anything like that. So a couple of people always do. And then Eli tells the story that happened to him, which was the story of the Bye Bye Man. Now it used to be that I would I wouldn't reveal the name of the Bye Bye Man, until uh, unless somebody specifically asked for it. Sure. So now that you can't turn on the television without seeing it, I guess that there's no point in doing that anymore. Right.
3: I mean, and and that's part of the story too. like the the name itself is part of the story. So I'll, I'll let yes. you I'll let you keep going. Sorry.
2: Okay. So. Eli would tell the story of the Bye-Bye Man. And very simply, the story went like this. Um, when he w- he was working in Sun Prairie, he was working in a home for... It was like... Um, It was a group home for people suffering from something called Prader-Willi syndrome, which is a very odd genetic disorder, which we will skip over.
3: Sure, but to let everybody know, Sun Prairie is a suburb of Madison, so it's just about 10 miles away from where I'm sitting right now. So it's on the eastern side of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, just for everybody listening.
2: And uh, he, he he was actually living there, and his girlfriend was there a lot, and a mutual friend of theirs named John was there a lot. Well, somebody gave them an old Ouija board and they 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 came up with some story about how the Ouija board is cursed or something. No one paid much attention to that. But so it's winter in Sun Prairie. I'd imagine there's not a lot to do. And Eli loves psychical research. So he said, let's fool around with the Ouija board. Let's let's do some experiments with it. Well, Eli couldn't get the board to move. I should mention that Eli is an absolute buzzkill when it comes to the paranormal. Nothing paranormal Ever happens around okay. him he has been trying to he has gone legend tripping he has been involved in psychical research he has gone on ghost hunts nothing happens when he's around no one knows he's just,
3: right he's like the he, instead of the ghost whisperer or whatever he's the i mean he's the the, the ghost like anti-magnet or I-
2: yeah he he just he repels it so anyway, he couldn't get the board to do anything. He and his friend John couldn't get the board to do anything. Anyway, he and his friend Kath, his girlfriend Catherine, and John, they were able to get the board to move. So finally, they were able to get the board to move. And Eli wanted to do some experiments. So when they began to get the board to move, and they uh, Eli wanted to see if, for example, they could get the board to spell out messages. Oh, and I should mention also, they were getting the board to spell out messages. And the messages were kind of new agey, you know, light, crystals, granola, all that stuff. (laughs) Nice, Nice stuff. All from spirits that had never been human. They were all kind of just Nice spiritual beings, you know, come into the light sort of thing. So
3: so they weren't like ghosts or anything like that. The people that Eli and his friends were originally talking to were just um, entities that always existed in the spiritual plane.
2: Exactly. That's what they claimed. Uh, So there was nothing scary about it. Uh, Anyway, they did some experiments. Eli wanted to see if they could get messages with um, John and... uh, uh, And Catherine blindfolded. They got some messages that way. He would move. He would was they were blindfolded. He would move the board around. They still got messages. So they were doing some interesting things. Eventually, they they, they, then they tried something where Eli would concentrate on. He'd write him. He was keeping notebooks of all the of all the stuff that came through. And if if you know Eli, you'd know he was starting to become impatient with this because Eli loves scary things. And these nice disembodied beings were not really his cup of tea. He was getting bored. And he also wanted to do a more interesting experiment. So what he did was he said, uh, they, they tried a few other experiments with the Ouija board, but then he said, okay, can any of these spirits put us in touch with somebody who was alive and died, and can this person, this spirit, give us some information that we couldn't possibly know but can verify? The idea was, let's see if we can get what what parapsychologists call veridical information, something that can be proven to say, ah, Something paranormal has happened.
3: Like if you can get like a the date of a death or something like that, and then go and then find the gravestone or, so it's exactly. to get some knowledge that there was no way you could learn except to the right.
2: body. Right. Now, of course, though, even if they did, some skeptics would say, Oh, they found it some way, but that, that's not, that's not the point for Eli's own satisfaction. He knew what he wanted. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what they set out to do. Well, it turned out that they weren't having a good, uh, much luck getting in touch with, the spirit with the spirit of the dead, and I should mention one other thing. I'm sorry, I skipped this. Um, one of the oddities about using the board with with uh, Catherine and John was that they did not speak directly to the spirits. This is kind of interesting. They had to go through a, a spirit or a being that called itself the spirit of the board. So think of it a little bit like a medium who uses her who uses her spirit guide to, to reach other spirits. Sure. It's like she might go into a trance, she contacts her spirit guide, the spirit guide leads her to the spirit of your Aunt Fanny, and that's how you that's how you communicate with the spirit of your Aunt Fanny.
3: Right, but it's like the mediums on the other side.
2: Right, so the way this was working was that they had to contact the spirit of the board in order to contact these other spirits. Now, as... Eli became—he uh, was again—he was—he really be, was becoming impatient with it. He wanted to talk to someone who was dead, and the spirits told him that they—they—they they, they weren't in contact with anyone who was dead. They were in contact with someone who was alive, and who wanted to contact them, but was very evil, and they didn't want to have anything to do with that. Well, that you might as well have just waved a red flag at Eli because evil. That's got to be cool. Right. Of course. Yeah. Catherine, uh, was not happy about the idea of trying to track down something evil, but Eli really wanted them to keep going for it. So they, they kept at it and they kept at it and they started harassing the spirits to like, come on, let us put us in contact with this one. Let us know. Well, the other spirits began to disappear. And finally the spirit of the board said, no, I, I won't do it and Eli had them go on strike. He knew that the spirit of the board loved to communicate. So he said, we're not going to communicate with you anymore until you put us in contact with this being. That actually worked. But he wouldn't put them in contact with the being itself. He would only transmit the information because the being was too evil. Okay. So over a period of time, they were able to piece together the story of this being that called himself the Bye-Bye Man. And the story goes like this. Sometime in the 1920s, a boy was born down in Louisiana. He suffered from he was an albino and he had very bad eyesight and his parents were poor and unable to uh, take care of him. So they put him in an orphanage in a place called Algiers. Now yeah, now keep in mind again this is all coming through the Ouija board in mm-hmm. bits and pieces. Eli is writing it all down, trying to put it together. So it, it it did not come out in order. But anyway, so this little boy in the orphanage, his eyesight is getting worse, and his behavior is wild. They can't he's he's uncontrollable. He's he's a bad kid. And as he gets older, his sight goes completely. The other children torment him because he's an albino, he's strange, and he starts running away. But first of all, he's an albino, and second of all, he's blind. He doesn't get far. Right. So they, they keep bringing him back. And by the, by the time that he's an adolescent, he, he attacks a nurse with a pair of scissors, and cripples her for life. Oh, God. And, and then he escapes from the orphanage. And makes it to a rail yard and starts riding the rails. Now, at some point, we don't know when, he changes into something else. He's no longer a normal blind albino boy like most normal blind albino boys.
3: (laughs) Right. I see him all the time. They're all over Madison. Yeah,
2: Yeah. he's changed into something that for some reason gets the name the Bye-Bye Man. Maybe it was, maybe he became involved in black magic. We don't know.
3: Well, what makes me think about this, you know, to, to, to unpack the sure. name real quick of the Bye Bye Man, what makes me think about this is that I think, I feel like the spirit of the board is playing with them there. Because Ouija, or the Ouija board, or whatever, is, you know, that's like the yes, yes board. You know, the we and the ya, ja, the, the French you know, yes and the I'll German be, yes. I'll
2: be, honest. I'll be honest with you, Mike, I never believed that. I never believed that. You know, according to the man who actually invented the board, he said the name came from the board itself. I have a theory about that. Personally, I think that it, it, it might be based on the Egyptian word or uh, or Wedjat, Wedjat is one of the words, which is an Egyptian word for good luck. You know, in the very early bo- versions of the Ouija board, it's called the Egyptian good luck board. Oh, Now, I can't prove this, of course. It's just a theory I have that. Uh, and I think it makes more sense than yes, yes. I mean, what does that mean? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything. I-, I think that was one of the uh, I think that was just a, a na- uh, an explanation that, um, oh, the guy who bought the board, the fold. I think that was just something fold came up with. Uh, to to enhance the the, the board's reputation. Sure. Uh, again, I, I, I my own theory is wedge at. I can't prove it, but it, it's something I think. So anyway, back to uh, back to the story that's coming out of the coming out of the yes yes board. So again, he's changed into something else, and. Mutilated bodies start turning up by railroad tracks.
3: Now we think of this. When we think of Louisiana the whole time. I think of him changing into something. You know, all I can think of is got to be some kind of voodoo. Ma- Obviously, that's the cliche. It's got to be some kind of voodoo magic in Louisiana. But
2: it's possible. I mean, it does make sense because, as it turns out later, I did some research. Algiers is notorious for voodoo. Okay. Um, so, any- but anyway, so at, at some point the Spirit tells them that he's, like I said, he's turned into this thing. He's turned into the bye-bye man. And he wears a broad-brimmed hat. He wears dark glasses with the lenses painted black. He has long white hair. He wears a kind of sailor's peacoat. He carries a kind of a sailor's sack that he calls the sack of gore. And it's it's uh, got bloodstains on it. And he is accompanied by a monster, a thing that he makes, that he apparently made from, I'm just assuming this, it's made from tongues and eyes. And presumably they're the tongues and eyes of his victims, because all of the victims have been mutilated. So, and he's stitched them together and infused this creature with some kind of a life. And the creature's name is Gloomsinger. Now, Gloom Singer. What, oh, I
3: love that. Gloom singer, now, there's yeah. an idea for your
2: song right there. Anyway, the the Bye Bye Man and the Gloom Singer ride the rails, just like hobo, like a hobo. They travel around the country. But what they do is this: when a person hears the name the Bye Bye Man or Gloom Singer, it makes them vulnerable. When they keep thinking, it makes them vulnerable to the Bye Bye Man because. As long as you think the name, the bye-bye man, it turns your mind into a kind of psychic beacon. And as long as you think bye-bye man, bye-bye man, it's like sending out a signal, and he starts to head in your direction, and he starts to hunt you down. So he begins to ride the rails in your direction. Now, when the bye-bye man gets close Bear in mind, he's blind, he can't see. That's where Singer comes in, because Gloomsinger is all eyes and tongues. So this bizarre little creature starts rolling along, and when it sights the victim, the one who keeps thinking the name, it lets out this, sh- this whistle. And then the bye bye man comes in for the kill.
3: Okay, so gloom singer, all tongues and eyes. So you think of the sensory things: the tongue, the taste, the right, so maybe speech, exactly. eyes. You have the, the sight. So he can't see, but he's got the, the he's got the the little creature. The little creature finds you, and then lets him know you're there. Oh, that's okay. That's even yeah, that's even it's, grosser.
2: It's pretty weird. <laughs> I love it. So then, um, the spirit of the board announces that. On top of everything else, the bye-bye man is aware of them and he's heading in their direction.
3: And their direc- their direction is Madison, Wisconsin in like 1990,
2: right? Uh, no, Sun Prairie. Okay, Sun, Sun Prairie. Prairie, Wisconsin. Yeah. And uh, well, that did it for Catherine. She was absolutely finished. No more seances, <laughs> no more sittings. She was done. She has a history of kind of bizarre experiences and she did not enjoy them and uh that was it i'll I'll tell you something else about that later but um she refused to have anything to do with it well naturally eli and john they were curious they wanted to keep the uh they wanted to keep the seances going with the board but they couldn't get the board to move it was it was over
3: so for some reason the spirit of the, the spirit of the board wanted to talk to Catherine.
2: She was, she was really the medium.
3: And now we kind of know why you don't want to reveal the name until the end of the story.
2: That was, that was always the way I did it, yeah. In fact, uh, what I did was I would, uh, I would say ahead of time that I, I'll tell the story first, but I won't reveal the name without mentioning first that if you don't want to if – if you have problems with intrusive thoughts, you might want to skip the name. Oh. Uh, because you won't be able to stop thinking about it. Uh, it was it was about as much showmanship as I've ever managed to <laughs> squeeze into a presentation. Uh, anyway, that was more or less the end of their business with the Ouija board and uh, getting the story of the Bye Bye Men. There are more details, but they're in the book. Anyway.
3: Right, you pick up the book to hear the rest. I'm sorry. I said I said people can pick up the book if they want to get the full experience.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you want to read the whole thing. It's it's all, the more details are in the book. So anyway, after this is all over, uh, Catherine and, and uh, Eli are living together, and Catherine is having she cannot sleep. She's having terrible nightmares. She's waking up at night. She's having panic attacks. It's really unpleasant. Eli is sleeping like a rock, as always. <laughs> right. nothing, nothing affects him. Hey,
3: he, he's not the guy with the paranormal experiences. You know, he's the guy no, that—he's the dampener.
2: Right, exactly. Uh, I, 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 Like I said, I feel bad for him sometimes. But uh, anyway, they decided— She was, again, kind of a nervous wreck. And spring was coming. And Eli decided— he wanted to go see a concert in Wausau, which is his hometown. Wausau is a town of about
3: fifty or sixty thousand people, just about two and a half hours uh, north of Madison and Sun Prairie. So, Wausau is like the it's it's a really a rural area, and we kind of consider Wausau like one of the first towns of the quote unquote up north, the wilderness area of Wisconsin. So, when you're kind of going up there, we call it going up north.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it's a it's a nice little town. Mm-hmm. I. um so they they traveled up there. There was a concert going on, and uh, Eli and Catherine traveled up to Wausau, and just the, the the concert was in the evening. So they had the they had the afternoon free. So so Eli was showing her all the glamour spots of Wausau, which doesn't take too long, <laughs> right? He's done in ten minutes. No, it, it's not. It's not a. It's not a, a big uh, a big operation. But one of the one of the nice things they have there is a place called Barker Stewart Island. And Barker-Stewart Island is a nature preserve with a railroad track running across it. It's in the Wisconsin River. Apparently, the nickname of Barker-Stewart Island is Body Island because the bodies of lumberjacks who died upstream uh, in Big Bull Falls would sometimes wash up on on Barker-Stewart Island. Also, there were a couple of... Odd things that happened over time. This woman who worked at a prangy waste store, who used to cross the, the railroad bridge to get home, was found murdered on the island. Uh, her intestines were hanging out. Mm, God. She was buried, and her sister was later murdered at the site of her grave. So, so, so there was a whole background to strange things attached to Barker Stewart Island. Oh,
3: now I can't wait to go there. Yeah,
2: it's, it's very pretty. It's In fact, it's also, it's got a species of prairie grass growing there that grows nowhere else on the planet Earth. Oh. It's just one of those odd things. And it's right, you know, it's not like it's very far into the river. It's just, it's just a railroad bridge across. Anyway, they're walking across the railroad bridge, and Eli said he saw a turtle or something down in the Wisconsin River, so he had to go see it. So he goes down there, and Catherine is on the bridge by herself, and... She starts to hear a whistle. Now, a whistle on a railroad bridge is not that strange, but it wasn't a rail whistle. It was kind of like a shrill sort of human whistle. And it was getting louder and louder and louder. And she remembered Gloomsinger. And the she... The whistle of a
3: thousand tongues.
2: <laughs> The bastard son of a thousand maniacs. (laughs) So she panicked. She took off running from the bridge. Eli had no idea what was going on. He, of course, heard nothing. He took off after her because he didn't know what was happening. And she was utterly terrified. She spent the rest of the day having panic attacks. It was a mess. They broke up soon after that. Anyway, Eli spoke to John. Who was living in a boarding house in Madison, okay it's a boarding house on Lake mendota i don't remember the address in fact when i there's a photograph of it in the book, okay. so while i don't i don't have the address, but if you 're curious, you can try to find it. Um, I know it's near the end of a street that's about all I can tell you sure. i deliberately did I deliberately didn't put the address because I thought the people who lived there wouldn't appreciate it
3: well, it's probably on campus, so to tell you the truth it's probably new people in there every year, so I'm sure they'd love to know.
2: Oh, okay. Well, I'm sure someone will come out with it. Uh, someone, someone will figure it out because, like I said, I honestly, I don't remember. But anyway, John was staying in an attic room in a boarding house, big, big boarding house in, uh, in Madison. And Eli came to visit him in Madison. And John was kind of a wreck. He was exhausted looking. And he told Eli a very strange story. One night, he he well, he had been having the same problems that Catherine was having. Mm -hmm. He was having nightmares. He was waking up at night. He was he was he was not getting any rest. And he was lying in bed one night, and he couldn't sleep. So he took out some paper and pencil, and he started to draw or something just to pass the time. And while he was lying there, he heard a knock on the door of his room he had there was a hallway down the uh down the center of the of, the, of the, the the different rooms that were available for boarders and there was a light out in the hallway and so he heard this door knock and he heard catherine saying hey john come on let's go for breakfast it's morning well he gets up and he's sort of not really paying attention and he notices that, no, it's not morning. It's pitch black outside. And it's around three in the morning or so. And the knocking at the door persists. Come on, John, let's go get breakfast. The knocking persists, and John just collapses. He is utterly terrified. No, no he's, lying, he's lying there on the floor of his bedroom, and he can see the shadows of two feet, under the door, out in the hallway. The knocking continues, and eventually he doesn't respond, and eventually the feet do go away. This, and I'll keep in mind, it's about three in the morning. I assume the front door of the boarding house is locked. Um, but someone or something using Catherine's voice was knocking at his door and asking him to come out. Classic vampire, like, let Mm -hmm. me in. right? Uh, So that was more or less, that is the true story, more or less, of The Bye-Bye Man. Now, again, Eli loved the story. So it became his Devil's Night standard. It was the way he, he ended every Devil's Night party and welcomed Halloween. Now, Eli is a good storyteller. He really knows how to say he he would have taken the story I told and given you shivers because he's good at it. And I heard him tell this story and I have heard a lot of strange stories, as you can imagine. Anyone who's into this stuff, and I'm sure you get this too, people will take you aside after one of your little speeches and they'll say, you know, I never told anyone this, but when I was 14, I saw a demon sitting on my bed or... Uh, some friends and I were out hunting and this gigantic hairy creature popped up out of the woods. We ran for our lives and almost overturned the pickup truck driving away. I've heard stories like this, a lot of them. And it was Eli's story that got under my skin. Right. When I woke up the next morning, I was lying in bed and looking at that bit of light under the door where you see the two, where you might see two feet you know the shadows of two mm-hmm. feet. I was lying there, just, just being, getting the willies. Really, just lying there in bed, being creeped out by this story. Well, after I had accumulated several stories for my historical, my historical oddity stories from the 14 times, I had this one story of the Bye Bye Man, and I said, should I include it? Should I not include it? I mean. It's not really historical. It's a spooky story, and I love it. Anyway, I finally included it, and it was the smartest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> so, because... how, how did
3: it get? Like, how did it get picked up and everything like that?
2: All right. Well, um, that's a long story. I won't go into it. But um, the the title of the original title of my book was "The President's Vampire." You will find another book titled "The President's Vampire." That title was stolen from me by that author. Um, we won't go it. That Yeah, we won't go into that, because um, it's perfectly legal. Anyway, it was included in The, in, in, in the President's Vampire, and I, uh, I am a slow writer, because like I said, I think, I think writing about the paranormal should be approached with the same respect that writing about history, science, anything else should mm-hmm. be approached with. It drives me crazy when people take this slapdash approach to subjects that I find fascinating. You know, you, and there's so much of that.
3: I completely agree with that. I think that the people that do the half-ass stuff, or or they come in and then they'll like not do enough research, or they'll not do, or they'll they'll just go over like glaring things. They'll be like, oh what? yeah, and then this magical thing happened, and then blah, and you're I, like, hold on there, you, didn't, you, you you completely lost me.
2: Well, you know, and or they're they're quoting a book. That's quoting a book. That's quoting a website. That's quoting another website. That's quoting an article from Fate from 1950, and that was based on that was based on a newspaper article that turned out to be a hoax. Right? You know, it, it's just that's the way so much paranormal writing is written. But I said, no, I'm going to write it like a proper historian. I'm going to get primary sources. I'm going to get, uh, everything's going to be documented. It's all going to be there. So I I did all that. And it, it gave my writing a certain, I won't say cachet, but it, 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 I think the readers really appreciated it because they knew that I took it as seriously as they did. Um, and, I always went out of my way to find stories that they didn't know. Or I w- if I found an interesting aspect to a story that they did know, that's what I would write about. And that seems to have served me pretty well. I mean, uh, people do seem to like my books, so I'm happy with that. All right. And uh, anyway, with The Bye-Bye Man, I began... I, I, th- again, this was this was the second plan I've ever made in my life that actually worked out. I said... I am going to do – and keep in mind, this was about 2005. I said this was when Art Bell was going off the air. Stop doing. He was not doing Coast to Coast anymore. George Noory was picking up, mm-hmm. and there was an explosion of paranormal podcasts. Uh, there were hundreds of them, hundreds. I mean, there was uh, – uh, on Blog Talk Radio, there, were, there had to be two or three dozen. Oh, at least uh, – yeah. And, you know, it was, it was usually it was just a guy sitting in his kitchen with the phone and great. I, I was fine with that. So I said to myself, I am going to do every single little show I can find and I'm going to get good at this. I'm going to get good at being on the radio before I get on the big shows, because I when I get on coast to coast, I want to be able to tell this story so that people appreciate it.
3: Right. You want to knock him dead.
2: I want to knock him dead. I, I, I wanted to have my joke ready. I wanted to have everything ready. Um, and it actually worked out. I did something like 50 or 60 shows. They called me, which was a shock, too. Uh, and that's how I ended up doing it. Well, when I did that, first of all, I sold a thousand books that night, which right. was really nice. Oh, man. But but as I was doing it, it turns out that someone in Hollywood was listening. And I told the story of the Bye Bye Man the way I told you that I used to tell it, where I wouldn't tell his name, and I and I and I would say you know and until the very end, and then uh, I would only say it with a warning that you you know if you you can't you can't stop thinking about something, leave the room, turn off your radio, do something like that. By the way, if you're on coast to coast, don't ever say on the air, turn off your radio. They don't appreciate <laughs> oh, my that. it on there. So anyway. Somebody out there heard it. I think it was Ted Pryor. Ted Pryor, uh, he made some really cheesy horror movies. I mean, he did one called Killer Workout, which was about a slasher in an aerobics place back in the eighties. That is just painful to watch, but he was, he was always in the, in, in the business and he, he made a lot of movies for a guy who really didn't work for the big studios. And he contacted me, which was pretty cool for me because I, I actually knew who he was. Also, and this surprised me, turns out he made some brilliant little documentaries on the Zodiac Killer. Ooh. I mean, these these things are incredible. Uh, I, I was really shocked that I couldn't believe it was the same guy who made these cheesy horror movies. But anyway, uh, he began to sell this. I, I told him. You know, I'm really, I'm thrilled that you contacted me. I know absolutely nothing. Talk to my editor. And that's what got things started. Uh, One, uh, there was something, the, the, uh, at the, in the end, I ended up getting a 30 to 40 page Hollywood contract, which has to be seen to be believed. I mean, it's, it's literally two or three inches thick. I had to read every word of it. I understood nothing. (laughs) I signed everything. So, and uh, in the end, I never expected anything to happen.
3: Right, because stuff get like, stories get optioned, scripts get picked up, you know, all the time. It's the
2: green light that counts. Uh, I never, ever expected it to be made. I was thrilled that I was getting option money. Right. That was more money than I'd ever seen, you know? It was, um, you know, uh, writing is not a big money proposition.
3: Right, it's not all Stephen King out there.
2: No, 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 no. In fact, you could probably list the Stephen Kings on two hands, you know? Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, the rest of us, let not not so much. But anyway. The
3: rest of us are writing stories for porno mags. I understand. Uh, yes.
2: it's it, uh, it, Again, those bills need paying. <laughs> so I put the story – although there was one thing I wanted to mention, and that was that part of what I had to do with the contract was I had to get permission from – Catherine and John, and of course Eli, but Eli was happy to get right, Eli was, He was all in. He was all. He's a great guy. I mean, you know, he said, if there's any money, he, they, they wanted to know what percentage he should get. He told me, he said, if there's any money, you take it, you need it because you're a writer. You know, so like I said, he is a great guy. <laughs> right. And uh, so, and also, he helped me write it because. I tried to get as stripped down a version of it as possible because he had been embroidering it and gussying it up and you know sure. making making the story because he wanted he was just telling it as a party story to scare people. Anyway, I did finally track down John and Catherine. It wasn't easy, but I did finally track them down. And uh, Catherine had an interesting little requirement. She was willing to sign the release. She wanted no money, but she wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. She didn't want to hear about it again. She didn't want to see anything about it. She didn't want anything to do with it. So, because it scared her that badly. I hope she's not watching Hulu this week. I hope not. Yeah, uh, she, well, I I think, I don't know what they did to the story. I assume they changed it a lot. But So anyway, Uh, Again, I never expected it to be made. About a year ago, a friend of mine writes to me and says, you know, your name is in Variety. And I said, why? And that's when things started to happen, because that's when they started talking about, oh, we have a production company. No, we sold it to another production company. No, it's owned by this production company. I still don't know who actually made the film. And then they started talking about they were casting it. I said, well, that's, that sounds impressive, but I still know that movies, entire movies get made and sit on a shelf for five years mm, or never, never get released at all. So I still wasn't going to allow myself to get excited. Then they said they were, they were uh, seeking out locations. Uh, still exciting. Then three weeks later, they were done filming. Then they announced the first release date and the second release. Finally, it is being released uh, on Friday the 13th. And uh, apparently around the world, because I have found posters in Chinese, Spanish, Russian, uh, Estonian. Wow,
3: Estonian—an uh, an, Estonian translation Eston- of your story—that's fantastic.
2: Yes, yes. In fact, I—if I, uh, you would like—I can send you the uh, the poster. Oh, the uh, the, the uh, thing. It's—I it, actually thought it was Turkish. I didn't know what language it was, but it was—it's uh, Estonian. So this thing is being, it is uh, going to become a worldwide phenomenon. And I wonder how many millions of people are now thinking the bye-bye man, the bye-bye man, the bye-bye man. <laughs> the right, there's the many, millions of new beacons. That's right, millions of new beacons. And apparent now I expected them to change the movie. I know when I go see the movie tomorrow night, I I do not expect to stand up and scream, you bastards ruined my movie. Right. I don't expect that. I know enough to know that translating a story that has no real beginning, middle or end need. It needs context. It needs characters. I know they had to make changes. And I expect that. I was really happy to see, though, that they kept some version of Gloom Singer. They made him into a dog, which I thought was really cool a mean looking dog okay. because he does help the bloom the, the bye bye man hunt. So right. it makes sense for him to be a dog. Uh, so I was pretty impressed by that. And, uh, and then, and then when um, Doug Jones was playing him and Doug Jones is just amazing. I mean, yes, I watched yes. this preview. I watched this preview. He looks like he's walking down a staircase in a bathrobe and yet he's scary. How can this be? I, I just I can't. I, I'm kind of in awe of Hollywood. It's it's a weird thing. On one hand, I can't get over what they can do. On the other hand, I find it very weird that they don't have the dedication to. This is not some. This is not a subject that fascinates them. This is a movie to shoot, a role to play, a right. script to write. Then on to the next thing. You know, it it, it might have nothing to do with it. And I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that because this is my life. You know, I I, I, I can't I, I don't just I don't fly in, do my bit and leave. This is this is what I do. So that that part of it's been a little strange for me. But uh, again, I, I am I am thrilled. I, I can I am so looking forward to tomorrow night uh, or Friday, whenever whenever I get to go see it. Well, we're super excited for you. Oh, you know, I, I really appreciate and it. And I'm sure
3: they changed the location. I'm sure it's not going to be... I, I know it's, that it's not
2: going to take it, place in uh, Madison. No, no. It's... Uh, oh, you know, I meant to mention one other thing. Uh, you know, I did some research because I wanted to find out if there was any truth to the Bye Bye Man story. Well, there was no orphanage in Algiers. And I... Algiers... The, the story never mentions that Algiers is part of New Orleans. Uh. I didn't know that either. turns out that... It's on the other side of the river. It's the only part of New Orleans that's not attached to the city. And uh, it also is a railroad hub. So the I think the Southern Pacific Railroad had a big train yard there. So, yeah, there was a lot of train traffic going through Algiers. So that little bit of the story kind of holds up.
3: Well, that's pretty cool. Uh,
2: yeah, that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I tried to figure out where the story might have come from and – they've apparently made it judging by the um the, the commercials because i don't know anything that they did sure. i don't i you know no, i was not consulted i i i didn't want to be consulted i mean you know if if somebody had called me to ask a question i would have answered it but i wasn't going to try to muscle in on something that really i know nothing about
3: right what did you start what did you sign the 40 page contract for so you, exactly so
2: exactly you I, you know Right, I mean, the only thing if they start making sequels, the only thing I ask is that if there's ever a restaurant scene, I want to be in the background somewhere on like working on my computer, which is you know that's which is kind of like how I wrote it um but uh, the film it, it takes they filmed it in Cleveland, okay, which is not a bad stand in for Wisconsin, no because it's, it'll have railroads. And, you know, it's got uh, it's got the same kind of prairie look. And
3: and funny enough, when they filmed Major League, the movie, the Bob Uecker and stuff like that was supposed to take place in Cleveland and they filmed it in Milwaukee instead.
2: Oh, naturally, because that seems to be the way things work. (laughs) Right. I don't understand it. Um, Like I said, this this is a whole world I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, This is probably my one brush with glamour and I'm going to enjoy it. Hell yeah. But uh, I'm also I'm on one. It's really strange because on one hand, there is a part of me that's saying that is desperate for attention. Like, oh, my God, people are finally paying attention to what I do. And there's another part of me that's saying, oh, God, I wish it was over. I just want to go back to being left alone, writing my stuff. And I don't want to hear about the bye bye man anymore. So it's it's a very weird thing because you get very. You get very ambivalent about this stuff, but I am still thrilled about it, and I I really hope that I I'm sure it's going to be a good movie. It looks terrific and I hope to sell a lot of books
3: well we hope you sell a lot of books and the thing is if you guys want to pick up a copy of the book that uh, this movie is based on uh, we're going to have links in the show notes where you can find uh, Robert's Facebook page The Historian of the Strange so you get updates from him we're going to have links to where you can purchase the book and you can find that all at othersidepodcast.com slash 127 that's othersidepodcast.com slash 127 and you'll be able to find links so we can connect with Robert read his updates and uh, check out the Real story that the hollywood version is just coming out
2: yeah and uh the one thing i mentioned earlier was that uh anyway eli and i are thinking about putting together a documentary when this is all over uh called the real bye-bye man just a short piece but we'll we'll go we'll film on the actual locations describe what happened and uh You know, know, it'll be much more open-ended, but I think people will be interested in seeing it. And besides, I'm getting awfully tired of reading these comments about saying it's a rip-off of Slender Man. Right. It came out years and years before anyone ever heard of Slender Man.
3: And interestingly enough, though, it was Wisconsin, uh, there was the Slender Man stabbing happened.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. About
3: about 60 miles from Sun Prairie.
2: Yes, well, let's face it, Wisconsin is one of those places where things happen.
3: (laughs) Don't (laughs) I know. Well, I got to thank you for joining us today, Robert. Uh, Your storytelling is wonderful. Your books are great. Uh, I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of this book. And we're going to have to have you on again sometime just to tell some of the other stories and everything uh, because I want to hear so much more about The Historian of the Strange.
2: Oh, great. My pleasure. Anytime.
0: Wow. Great job, Mike.
1: Fantastic interview, Mike.
3: Thank you, guys. You know, who else thought so? Robert Damon. And uh, he, uh-huh. he said that he'd come back in the show anytime to talk Excellent. about other stuff. Yay! So the thing is, I want to, there's so much, I mean, the president's vampire story, like he, he just has a ton of interesting, strange tales. And this week we just wanted to talk about The Bye-Bye Man because the movie came out, yeah. uh, but we have a ton of other stuff and I hope he has a new book out soon or whatever so I have an excuse to bug him again and then we can all get in and we talk to Robert Damon and, and pick his brain about weirdness in the world.
1: Yeah, Sounds and great. I mean, uh, even if he doesn't have a book out, he's he's always looking for strange stories um, and posting them on on Facebook at um, his page, Historian of the Strange.
3: And you'll be able to find that yeah. on the other side dot com slash one two seven is where you can find that.
0: Well, I don't know if I'm going to have the guts to actually watch the movie because just hearing him tell that story. <laughs> really creeped me out. (laughs) But if you saw the movie or you're curious about how the screenplay compares to the story that Robert shared with us, there's a podcast that the International Screenwriters Association puts together. And it's called Page Two Screen. This week, they're talking about Bye Bye Man. So that would be a good place to go and check out some discussion about the screenplay. And I'm really curious to hear and possibly see how it compares to the story. And we'll be sure to include a link to that in our show notes as well.
3: You know, one thing that I I really liked about him is that he doesn't try to have some kind of of out-of-your-butt explanation for things. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. He pretty much sticks to the facts.
3: Yeah, he sticks to the facts and just says like, well, here's some theories I have. But he doesn't say, you know, well, obviously the Bye-Bye Man was this demonic entity that showed up. And then he really was in Wausau, Wisconsin, like tracking (laughs) them down. Uh, he doesn't get too ridiculous, and I really appreciate that because that makes me believe his writing even more.
1: Right, and and a lot of his writing, too, um, you know, has strong ties to history. So, you know, that's what's fun about it, too. You know, when you're talking about the paranormal, how much of it can be verified, but— uh, it's tantalizing when you, you feel that there are real connections, and you find out that there are real connections to history.
3: And it also is tantalizing to realize that right in our own backyard in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, there's there's some Ouija board that's probably still around here. Ooh. That is what the Bye Bye Man used, you know, Scary. to find that... To zone in, to hone in on these college students and come in for the kill. Wow. And I love that. And the and the fact is that boarding house is still on Lake Mendota, where the weird knocks happened in the middle of the night. And I'm just thinking about that. Now, so, now, Wendy, we've lived in a variety of different kind of places. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think about yeah. that. Ho- like, Think about all the houses we lived in in college. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you would have like separate entrances um, there'd always be a ton of doors, people coming in and out. Allison, you even lived somewhere where you had like a weird downstairs neighbor, right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't a downstairs neighbor. He was he was actually a homeless guy who lived in our basement. <laughs> and um, it was an wow. unfinished basement, and he actually had um, curtains. Well, not curtains, like bedspreads up as a big curtain. Like he would live in the corner, and then he'd have that area like partitioned off with these... With these, you know, uh, reams of cloth, and then anytime I came down to do the laundry, he'd come out and talk to me. <laughs> Perfectly wow. normal, right?
3: Right. He was related. He so lived with the Bye Bye Man.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, He he was he was related to uh, the um, owner of the home where we were living, but <laughs> it was very strange. But you know, he was one of those like '60s kind of radical characters. So I was like, yeah, if you're a hippie, you're okay.
0: <laughs> you're all right,
3: right? Man. He was like. Like a freegan or something. Yeah. The thing is, I can just imagine, uh, you know, there's always people coming in and out of those places and there's always separate entrances. And if you were being stalked by a supernatural murderer, um, that would be like those places would be perfect because they just they just sneak up your staircase, you know, knock yeah. on the door in the middle. of. The you just night.
0: think it's one of your roommates or something.
3: Right. And I remember one house uh, that when I was living on the top floor, it had its own staircase to the back, its own back door. And uh, sometimes people would come up to the back door and nobody else would see them. Nobody Mm -hmm. else knew they were around. Uh, and that's and that's the kind of thing. Like if I hear that knock in the middle of the night, three o'clock, let's go out for breakfast. Yeah, I hop, I So, like, where would they where well, I'm thinking about in nineteen in nineteen in nineteen ninety in Madison, they would be going to IHOP. That'd be so, the only place to go at three o'clock in the morning.
1: Well, so that's, like, it's funny because
3: fruity it, it, Toody, yeah. fresh and fruity.
1: <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the the land shark.
3: <laughs> right, <laughs>
1: extra side of bacon.
3: <laughs> and, right. Right, extra loved to the cut of your eyes. It's
1: really the bye man <laughs> with a bag of tongues and eyeballs. It's the well, pale the gloom of, singer.
3: <laughs> the sack of gore. And, you know, that's the perfect transition because uh, when we were talking about ideas for songs and things like that for this week, there was just one word that I couldn't get out of my head. Gloom singer. for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time,
0: see you on the other side. Wendy, 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 who can't we forget? Oh my gosh, Ned. We saw him at the party last weekend. We did see Ned at the party last weekend. Thanks for weekend. coming to the party, thanks, Ned.
3: Th- thanks for enjoying the party with us, Ned. And uh, also, Ned is at the level of Patreon that he gets a shout out every single episode. So Ned, thank you. Your support makes this awesome stuff possible absolutely and for the rest of our patreons we love you too and your yes. support makes it possible and so uh, you can also join that community if you're interested and get cool surprises and just help support the kind of stuff that uh wendy and i and our guitar player ben put out every single week and you can find that at othersidepodcast.com slash
0: donate
1: that's right bye bye
0: bye bye man, man.
3: Let's face it, Wisconsin is one of those places where things happen.